0: You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard.
1: Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie.
0: Hey, everyone. This is Aaliyah.
2: And today we are joined by one of my favorite people, Bernadette Onyanaka, And I'm just so excited for this conversation. I feel like every time I talk to Bernadette, I am just challenged to think differently and deeper and motivated to just be unapologetically who I am. And so today we're here to have a conversation on Bernadette's thoughts around mass incarceration and the impact on women and girls. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. So glad to be here today. I'm so hyped. One fellow Jersey girl. I'm just super excited about that. Like for real, I saw your phone number and I was like, Aaliyah, where is she from in Jersey? Like my whole heart exploded. Um, And then on the second front of your work in women's reentry issues and mass incarceration. So that's fully my jam as well. I'm really, really excited for this conversation. So tell us how you got to this point. What has you involved in this space where, you know, what, what made you so passionate about these issues?
0: Sure. So I want to, I guess, maybe preface by saying, like, I'm not yet involved in this work. Um, I'm currently a graduate student, and my journey into this is deeply like, like, grad school is sort of like going to be my springboard into this. If you care about
1: it, you're involved. You're good.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay. So um, my journey, I guess, first and foremost, first and foremost, is like, I'm a Black woman. Um, and I when, I... when I studied for my first master's, I, I did health promotion, and I, I focused a lot of my work on Black women, um, issues that were impacting Black women, from, like, physical, like, you know, obesity and, and you know, the very stereotypical, like, public health stuff, like obesity, hypertension, and um, diabetes, et cetera, um, and then started really transitioning into focusing on sort of the mental, mental health issues and sort of social issues that don't get talked about in our community. And that was ten years ago. And then after that, after I graduated, I did none of I did not work in that space at all. I worked in stuff that was focused on kids, and so it kind of just was laying dormant while I was figuring out my life. Fast forward um, to a um, maybe several years ago, I was working at the NAACP, and I was working on this sort of sideline project, this sidebar project that my boss and I had been sort of tasked to write this this paper on like specific issues of these really racial-specific issues of, of childhood obesity in, in the Black community. And in my research, I stumbled upon this report from, I believe it's the African-American Policy Forum, the policy forum that Kimberly Crenshaw uh, led leads on Black girls getting pushed out of school. So, you know, I just started reading the report. I was like, this has nothing to do with childhood obesity, but Black girls, we're talking about suspension. I'm going to read it. And then reading it was a super triggering experience because as I was reading it, I was realizing that I had personally experienced some, to a very small degree, some of these issues that lead to black girls to being pushed out of school and into the criminal justice system. And more, more often than not, I had witnessed these experiences with my own eyes, you know, throughout my four years of high school growing up in Canyon, New Jersey, where. I would say 80% of the student body was black and brown. And then the other 20% was like Asian and all of our teachers, all of our administrators looked like us and still these issues. still reading that report was just reading sort of uh, just the laundry list of things I had seen occur in my what own. Were the,
1: what were some of the issues that you're speaking about?
0: So this, this targeting of black girls and just, really focusing on, like, policing their attitudes and their behaviors. And when they weren't compliant, then they would get kicked out of class. Then they would get suspended. Or they would be labeled troublesome and put in certain types of classes and be barred from honors classes, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't know personally if the girls that were put out of school or put out of class, when I witnessed it myself or when they were just being sort of um, zeroed in on or targeted by teachers and administrators, I don't know sort of what their path, ha- what happened to them afterwards. I don't know if any of them seriously involved, were involved in like, you know, in the criminal justice system or got pushed into it. But reading that report was so just eye opening because it gave language to what my 15 and 16 year old self didn't have a language for at the time where I was like, this feels icky, this goes wrong. And I mean, what 15 year old girl has a good attitude but why is it always black girls who get singled out being, having a bad attitude and then treated as if they are criminals when really they're just, you know, teenage girls who universally aren't the most pleasant people on the planet.
1: Yeah.
0: I
2: mean, what's crazy to me is how often this happens, not just in our schools, like if you think about it, how often does the stereotype of the angry Black woman Mm -hmm. then prevent many of us from being at the table or being pushed away from the table in our adult lives as well? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I yeah. labeled that plenty or I'm labeled very aggressive. And when I do stand up for myself, I've been called like, even in the past couple of months that I'm arrogant, I act like I'm better than everybody else. And I'm like, I was literally just stating facts. Like I didn't come for you. I wasn't trying to be, Oh, look at me. I was literally just talking facts and you didn't like it. So we, all of those microaggressions and stereotypes that we get Placed on us every single day are so like hard hitting, and we don't even realize it. We just internalize it and keep on going.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Even though you know we know it's wrong, it's like, we're, we're, well, what are you going to do?
0: And for Black girls in in schools in particular, they're so vulnerable. They're so vulnerable. Nobody really listens to them. Nobody acknowledges. So few people fully acknowledge like, the range of their humanity, and then that extrapolates into adulthood. And if you layer on all of these socioeconomic issues, especially around poverty, if you live in areas of concentrated poverty, if you have such levels of disadvantage and you've grown up in chaos and violence and trauma, you know, layer those experiences onto being Black and female and how the world will interpret your responses to those traumas, to those, to those um, disadvantages. And what you have is... And what you get is what we have, which is this problem of mass incarceration that has not spared uh, women and girls of color. And particularly Black and Native and Indigenous women have suffered or have been most heavily targeted by these um, by these issues. Um, and that's not to say that Latino women have not, because they also have. But the numbers, when you look at the numbers for, Latin, for Native, and, Native and Indigenous women specifically, are staggering and then followed by Black and Latina women, which are also just deeply problematic. Um, and so we've got this massive problem that has... We've got this problem of mass incarceration, which is a big problem, but is often centered on men. Those conversations, the discourse, the data, the narratives are so deeply male-centric that it overshadows and sort of makes invisible the fact that women are also caught up in this system, that girls are caught up in this system. so.
1: Oh, the um, whole the whole spectrum for women in this space so is like appalling so when you look at even how we're socialized to go into caretaking positions that if you have a criminal history you can never go back in to be a daycare provider or a health care provider typically then the actual services that are offered or the coursework that's offered while you're incarcerated women are now learning HVAC and some of the mechanical and technical stuff, but they weren't. So they were going in and learning sewing and things and creating these skills that would not help them upon reentry. Then when they got out, when you look at that spectrum of the jobs that are available for people with criminal history are typically in the trades. But if you Mm -hmm. have children or you have a family that you need to take care of, that's out Mm -hmm. for you. And then you add, like you talked about a lot, trauma and all of these other factors that tie into that, women are at such a disadvantage in the criminal justice realm if you're touched at any point along the way. So I'm really glad you're doing this work and being a big advocate for it, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. like as you look through this issue... Like, what can be done? Like, what are the things you're noticing about what we need to do in order to create a system that better supports women and girls from the very beginning, from school to reentry to even preventing, you know, situations where they are touching the criminal justice system?
0: I mean, there's really a society-wide issue of addressing poverty. Um, Like I mentioned, you know, the vast majority um, of women who are incarcerated, and that is across the racial um, spectrum are from low-income communities, low-income backgrounds. And so addressing this problem of intergenerational and concentrated, geographically concentrated poverty is, is one issue. And that then requires us to address sort of our education system, right? Like, we need to target resources, funding, tax dollars to communities that are systemically, structurally, geographically disadvantaged. Our school systems need not to be funded by Local property taxes, which inherently bakes in disadvantage, and there needs to be systems. There need to be some sort of like funding equations that make up the difference. Because what I have learned is that it's 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 impossible to sort of um, to democratize the funding via property taxes of school systems. You can't really do it. You can't prevent sort of local jurisdictions from providing extra funding or baseline funding to their school systems based on those property taxes. What then needs to happen then is that state and federal governments need to make up the difference so that you don't have, you know, your Camden, New Jersey where I grew up versus the Cherry Hill, New Jerseys, which was literally 10 minutes down the road for me and had massively different funding structure, funding available for the schools and the spending per pupil, investments in teachers, investments in books and resources, and even the physical schools themselves that were so varied, so vastly and different. And it's the
1: same county. That's the thing, the is that Cherry Hill yeah. and, like, they're literally the same county, and so the resources mm-hmm. should be equitable, and they're not.
0: And they're not. They are not. And that, so addressing sort of poverty, um, one, through addressing um, our school system, two, jobs training. Um, we need to really focus on providing jobs and skills training for our adults who are no longer you know in the school system so that they can actually have marketable skills that won't be automi- you know won't be reduced or eliminated by automation in the next five to ten years. And that requires significant federal investments in um, in jobs training programs and job creation programs. I think we're in this moment right now with COVID as we are seeing you know, tens of millions of people file for unemployment over the last several months, where we're, we're really in the space of the... of what I hope will result in the next the new generation of the New Deal. Like, when this is what happened in the, in the Great Depression, there was 25 percent unemployment, and the federal government said, well, we're going to spend, spend, spend and invest in public sector jobs so that we can get people working and we can get people skilled up to the, so that they can work. That, back then, it was different. It was less a focus on skills and more a provision of jobs. Now it absolutely has to be skills-focused. And these skill focuses really need to not have, not to retain these gendered, um, the gender roles, this patriarchal gender role system that we saw, what we, that saw women going to prison and learning how to sew as if they were gonna come out and be like commercial seamstresses. That doesn't really exist anymore. Um, And so providing people with skills that are useful, marketable, going to get you good paying jobs and can't be automated away, and not sort of delineating who gets access to these skills training based on gender, race, and geography. So Bernadette,
2: I wanna stay there for a minute. Like how do we ensure? So if we have these resources coming out, the federal government or state governments are spending, and let's say we're successful in getting new money for schools or new money to um, advance anti-poverty initiatives. Like, how do we ensure that there's a focus on women and girls? Like, what questions should decision makers be asking? What data should they be looking at? Like, how do we actually get resources targeted to this very population?
0: So I guess really just making sure that those questions are being asked, making sure that the data is looking and disaggregating data by gender and race is super important. So when these programs, you know, when the programs get the funding, if they were to get the funding, The research, the program design should already be in place that says, we are going to look at these outcomes and the implementation of these programs and the disbursement of these funds based on these, these critical factors, such as location, race, and gender, so that what doesn't happen is that, oh, well, whoever's administering the program in whatever jurisdiction is deciding, making these decisions without any level of accountability. So it really has to be baked into sort of the evaluation the program design and program evaluation have to be designed in tandem and the have, they have to have these accountability measures that that just that literally call for this data to be disaggregated by gender and um by gender and, and race so, so that
1: for the listeners that don't know what you mean by program design what it, what are you saying when you say program design
0: so essentially like how the program design is the decisions on how the program itself these programs will be operated how they will be implemented which means who gets the money? When did they get the money? How did they get the money? How was it used? And in what way, like, for to what end? Are we just saying we're going to dedicate X number of dollars to, like, it's, it's all about specificity, really. Like, program design is about being as specific as possible so that we know who, what, when, where, and how dollars are spent and how these programs are provided, how they are presented. It's almost like thinking about, like... For, thinking about designing a curriculum for class and you want to teach someone complicated like mathematics what are the steps to get from one plus one equals two to advanced algebraic calculations there are there are required steps there is a graduated process and so in designing a program for a program implementation really needs to sort of account for how do you get from point a to point b and then how do we and program evaluation design is how do we understand or how do we evaluate how point we how programs moved from point A to point B? Did it actually do what it was supposed to do, when it was supposed to do it, and how it was supposed to do it? And did it produce the outcomes that we were hoping for? And if it didn't, what went wrong? What needs to be changed? What needs to be adjusted so that we can get to the intended outcomes of these programs?
1: And that's what really frustrates me, too, is that People aren't using data that's impactful, right? And so, there, and this is partially why we started checkbox outreach because it's checkbox data. And a lot of times it's checkbox implementation. And in doing that, we just create this revolving door of problems and it's a cycle. And I have my issues with some groups that use that revolving door for their numbers and for grants and everything else, and they're not really solving. The real problem. Like my whole take on a lot of nonprofits is that they should have a 10-year plan that puts themselves out of work. Like they should be solving the problem so they don't, they're not needed after 10 years. And unfortunately, that's not the case in a lot of situations because there's a huge need. I'm not discrediting their work. I'm not discrediting their efforts. But I just feel like we have to turn it on its head to really address these issues differently because it is so deep ingrained and is so systematic and systemic and institutional and every other thing that you can think of that creates these disparities that we're seeing.
2: I mean, when you think about it, a lot of this goes back to the way the work is funded. Most foundations that are funding nonprofits are not funding you to do 10 years worth of work that is focused on rooting and addressing disparities. It's a two-year cycle or a one-year grant, and we know it took way longer to get these disparities in place, and it's going to take way longer to address them, but that's not the way the funding's set up. Even if we go back to the example Bernadette provided about funding for schools and thinking about it from property taxes or income taxes, most of our local governments, their tax base due to COVID-19 is gonna be decimated. And if we're still using those same funding structures to provide for our children and families, most places just aren't even gonna have like the, I don't know, the amount of taxes to get the bare minimum of supplies, let alone do something more innovative. And I don't know what that looks like, but I think you're right, it really is. We have to change the funding and change the system and flip that on its head to be able to actually push forward the work that's gonna have a real impact.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up a really you bring up a great point, Aliyah. I just wrapped up a stint um, working in a philanthropy and have learned so so much about the work um, that 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 space of the work. And you're absolutely right. Like how like the way that nonprofits are funded to do their work is contradictory to actually getting results. If they are constantly trying to reapply for one year and one to two and three year funding that's often very specific, that's often like these dollars are, those dollars that they're applying for only apply to, you know, a very um, exquisitely specific part of their work that doesn't help them even operate functionally where they're like, oh, we've got to use this $150,000 for X program, but we don't have enough money for our operating expenses and we can't use those funds to help us just run the business of this, this organization that and is that in their their note itself is a large problem. And then to your, your other point about like this, you know, local governments are their their, their tax bases is getting wiped out right now. And what is that going to look like in places like Baltimore and DC and low like in low income wards of DC where the tax base was already low and now you've got a doubling or tripling of of unemployment and whatever income you were getting completely gets completely wiped out. So I think, big picture, there needs to be a complete restructuring, recalculation of, like, you cannot fund, we cannot fund a society based on an eat-what-you-kill sort of, like, funding model, especially if we are then funneling people or sort of isolating people in regions where, in in areas where they can't even get out of the situations that they want to because they can't access good education, access good jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's, it's this circular as basically, all of the American, all of our American
1: culture just needs to be re oh, re 100%. Ooh. And Ali and I were just talking the other day about how we, whether you like it or not, we live in a capitalistic society, right? Like capitalism runs the game, yet we still rely on government and nonprofits to solve social problems. And so we have to approach it differently. The funding mechanisms, the check marks, to me, even for the nonprofit work, where does the money come from? So the money, if it's coming from a an organization or, a, you know, a donor, they're the ones setting those standards of what they want to see for that grant making. And so mm-hmm. for me, it's about wealth generation. And if we can work with communities, we can build up our own wealth. We can fund our own programs to where we understand the lived experiences in those communities every single day and, you know, can make it more robust or make it what it needs to be. That's the long game through and through. And I think conversations like this are needed to educate people to get them there. In this work, I find sometimes when you work with people, the funders and the policymakers and the decision makers, I I struggle with not further perpetuating stereotypes. Part of why we launched Checkbox Outreach was to crush stereotypes. You I'm know what so I mean? Fun. It's hard. I, I know
0: exactly what you mean, and it's a really difficult balance because, you know, I've worked in the health promotion, health education space for 10 years. And I now, like, having worked in racial equity specifically for the last several years and looking back on how so much of our the work and the data and the narratives are framed, it all feeds into this deficit thinking, sort of, um, this, this, this system of deficit thinking, where it's like, when we say that these numbers, that 70% of so-and-so, these communities experience X, Y, and Z, it completely reinforces the stereotype that, all Black and brown people are poor, all Black and brown people are going to go to jail, et cetera, et cetera. So balancing that is really like, I'm, I'm trying to reorient how we present data by out, outwardly saying like, this is not a monolithic representation of these communities. And while these numbers represent sort of a, a large largely shared experience, the common denominator here is poverty. So I don't, like, I try to explicitly point out that it's not about the people, it is about the poverty. it is about their circumstances and that understanding that the poverty is poverty is a central root cause and it's not that people are deficient in any way. it is a, it is a deficiency of our society and how we view and value people that is the problem um, to sort of help combat that but it is it's, it's, it's a it's a tension because on, on one hand you're trying to really communicate that this is a serious problem that this is impacting a lot of people. And ultimately, um, but at the same time, not feed into this stereotype that, you know, pre- or, or preconceived notions that, well, then it's something obviously is just wrong with those people because, you know, those other communities, you know, these communities in suburbia are obviously just, you know, doing just fine.
1: And I think then you get on that whole please don't get me started and let's not talk but- about historical issues. And then you okay. an angry black woman. Like it's a- well, oh.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I I just I wear it proudly. It's just like, yes, I am angry, and you should be too. Yeah. Like you would be angry if you were me. I would be angrier. Like, and I'm a I'm a black woman of relatives. Privilege. Like, I grew up in relative privilege, and I exist in relative privilege. But every day that I open my Facebook feed and have to, like, scroll past these hashtags about people who look like me, who could have been my family members, that is an assault on my existence, and thus far... And that means, like, that, like, my economic privilege means absolutely nothing when all I see is, you know, sort of the death and despair that is impacting my community because our society does not value us.
2: I I feel this very strongly. Like when you are in the data, when you are seeing the hashtags, when you are reading the articles, when you are constantly in this work and in this fight, I think people call it self-care, but I almost think of it as like Mm -hmm. self-preservation. How do you take care of yourself in order to, be able to continue to be a part of this fight and to keep pushing on these issues, which so many people either don't want to talk about or just don't want to do something different for?
0: Um, You know, it's been a journey that is, um, I've had progress and regress in the self-care area. So I will say that what has been the most beneficial way for me to take care of myself is to be physically active. And I've noticed that when that has subsided, when I've been less active, it is significantly harder for me to take care of myself emotionally. I also recognize that there is a point where you have to cut off. You have to just sort of, like, back away from some of this data, Some take a break. It is OK. I, I tell myself that it's OK to take a break, that, you know what, I don't need to read you know that 75th report that's just going to go into massive data detail about all of these disparities that I already know. Like, I have learned that... I am a subject matter expert on suffering of communities of color, and I don't need to continuously expose myself to that oh, unless specific. That's
1: powerful. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Unless
0: it's specifically trying, like for a specific body of work, like work of product that I have to do, I don't actually need to read those details because I already know them. I already know those numbers.
2: So what's next for you, Bernadette? And that could be just, what's your next big step? What's next around the conversation and the work you're looking into around women and girls and mass incarceration, but what happens next?
0: So uh, what happens next is, you know, um, according to Georgetown, I do have to finish writing my capstone on women <laughs> and girls, um, uh, uh, women and girls in, in mass incarceration. And I specifically focus on like a tra- the trauma lens. Um, so finishing that project is going to be what, what comes next. And then really after that, like I am, I am notoriously not a planner. I am like averse to it. I, I I'm not that person. So I am really excited about what, potential opportunity could be out there. um, Because I'm I'm at Georgetown, I've been in conversations with folks at the uh, Center for Juvenile Justice. And I also am consulting, doing some consulting work on racial equity, and at some point would like to branch that work specifically into this space. But since I'm still like in the learning space, I'm still in grad school, I'm still writing and learning about that. For me, I'm really just like, what really I'm focusing on for next is just deepening my subject matter expertise, especially around sort of the the solutions to the problem. Like I can be a problem. Like I think that in this work, we often become problem experts. And as we're trans, as, as I'm transitioning to really focusing on being solutions oriented yes. and say it again, being,
1: one more time for the people all the way in the back.
0: As I am focusing <laughs> on being solutions oriented, my goal is to really like present that information to the people who have the power to make those decisions. Um, it's taken me a while to figure out sort of my place in the ecosystem of, like, change, social change, because I'm not a frontline like like, organizer, but, you know, the advocacy space and really sort of speaking truth to power with data and then pres- providing analysis of solutions that are attainable, that are doable, if only we could muster the political will to then funnel the resources and energy around these issues, um, I think is going to be is- is sort of my sweet spot. So that essentially, like, I will continue, I will, you know, essentially become a professional rabble rouser in, in various fronts. Um, well, in you have two soldiers in the fight yeah, with we're you. In way
2: true. Katie and I can help, that is what we want to do, push solutions. I guess my last question would be, how can our listeners stay in touch with you?
0: So I'm actually, part of my self-care was to, like, remove myself from social media in a large way. So at the moment, um, you can't really follow me, anymore, <laughs> but I don't need I just like stalk people who I don't like and like obsessively read what they say. Um, but you know, keep your ears open for the ONG racial equity collaborative. That's like my consulting gig at the moment, um, which is as consulting startup in this racial equity space. And I mean, I, there's literally only one out on Yanaka, like in the United <laughs> States. So if you ever see my name pop up on Google or social media or whatever, And it's not like attached to some insanely like personal picture that I'm probably doing work. And that's the goal. So the goal is that you will see more of me on these internets, but not on the social media webs.
1: Love it. Bernadette, thank you so much for your time. I cannot wait for future conversations. You're always welcome back on Checkbox Outreach to continue the conversation because I'm really excited to to follow your journey and to see where you go for sure.
0: Thank Thank you so much for having me. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps?
1: Aaliyah, Aaliyah, Bernadette was dropping all the knowledge. I know we initially had scheduled the conversation to talk about reentry and women's issues and reentry, of which I was super hype and excited. But the conversation just went into so many different important directions, and I was just really motivated, and I'm motivated right now in making a change and making a difference, hopefully with Bernadette right next to us.
2: Yay! I was so excited because I was like, yes, I have cool friends too. Everyone <laughs> on the show is not just Katie's friend.
1: <laughs> She's super cool.
2: Um, I mean, as a public health person, I feel like I want to geek out because we couldn't talk about the issues of mass incarceration and a criminal justice system without going to the root cause. And I think that's what Bernadette took us to school on, mm-hmm. literally, because we started out talking about schools. Yeah. So when I think about my major takeaways, I was really struck by the conversation around school discipline. And how, in many cases, our young girls, especially young black girls, are being Targeted or criminalized because of their attitudes and different stereotypes are projected onto them at a young age from the angry black woman to being aggressive or arrogant or overconfident and how those stereotypes and those labels then impact their educational experience. But also, I mean, Bernadette talked about, you know, whether or not they were considered for gifted programs or other programs that might lead to greater exposure and new skill sets. And so I think thinking about the linkage between how those labels and stereotypes can then result in a young woman going on a different path that might lead to, you know, either dropping out of school or lead to being incarcerated. I think it's really important for us to be paying attention to, like, what are the environments we're setting up for our young people and how do we improve that?
1: And that's a quick not a quick fix. It's the long game. Everything is the long game, but it's a quick assessment looking at your data when you look at expulsions and who, what types of kids are making up that data because it'll be a very telling picture. And I know ACPS, the Alexandria City Public Schools actually is looking at that and using an equity lens to look at that. And it's something that I had never thought of before, right? And the impacts of expulsions on where do those kids go during the day, right? And then when you talk about criminal activities, teen pregnancy, whatever it might be, like there's not a lot to do during the day if you're not in school other than criminal activity or possibly becoming a teen parent. So it's, it's a conversation that is very, very um, important and that we have to keep having for sure.
2: Right. And on that point of data, I think I was aware of the need to disaggregate the data by race. I don't think I've ever lo- looked at it from this lens on top of it as gender as well. And what's happening to our young girls, and young women in our school systems, and then how does that play out in terms of how they're treated in other systems, in the workplace, in you know, healthcare, and so forth, and how do we need to be having you know, gender-based policies that are actually sensitive to the needs of like, the female experience in this world?
1: Yeah, for sure. And we're as a woman or as women, I feel like we're so negatively impacted from birth and how we're socialized and what to expect. We talk about the wage gap and I am a huge believer that the bulk of the wage gap, when you look at why, I think it's because we don't go into negotiations and we don't go into a job demanding the highest salary men typically do. And so you see these studies of where women and men will apply for the same job and the women will always not always but typically ask for less than what the man asked for. And so through the gate we're at a disadvantage just based on how we are socialized and what we're taught to believe in ourselves and what our capabilities are. And so the emphasis on gender has to be very, very intentional moving forward. Exactly. So
2: that was my takeaway. And I know we could keep going with it, but I want to make sure um, our listeners also hear what resonated with you from the episode.
1: Yeah, the data is very, very important. And it goes back to what we talked about. We have checkbox data that's what people typically do, that then results in checkbox behaviors. And by checkbox data, I mean when we look at programs and we say, oh, it's the number of people served. We, this many people came through our door. Okay, cool right? Like, where's the impact in that? And so we have to get out of this mold or get out of this habit of using data that makes us look good, or using data that's just for the grant, or using data that's easy, but actually using data that says, hey, how is this tying up into our poverty conversations? How is this tying up into our access to education conversations? Like, that's the data that we really need to be looking at, and it means that people's jobs might get a little bit more difficult, but if we want to see real change, we have to be very intentional with that. That.
2: Yes. Can I say my favorite quote from you? Yes. Um, oh, you were me? Talking... I thought I just got so yes. excited
1: for Bernadette. Sorry. <laughs> no, this,
2: one, this one's from you. And it comes from a conversation you and I were having recently with a decision maker. And you said, you know, I sit in my apartment and if 75 Amazon packages were delivered, does that mean I had a successful day because 75 people came through the door? Absolutely not. And yeah. I think that to me, like put it so plainly of how data that's just how many numbers served. It's important context. But if we don't know what then was in those packages or the result of how those things were used, then we're missing the bigger story about what the impact was or what the impact could have been. Mm
1: -hmm. There's a really great book called The Lean Startup, and they talk about vanity metrics in that. And what type of metrics are you just using because they're glossy, they're pretty, they're shiny, and they might make you look good and it's easy. So I encourage people to check that out and actually start asking the harder questions about what does success really, really look like for us, and then how are we going to measure it? The other, I guess my takeaways, the first one was really looking at job and skill training. And for me, that's really important, in just being an advocate for workforce development. But we have to do it differently. We have to be high impact, again, use metrics and use data that's going to make a difference but start thinking about it a little bit differently. Again, in leveraging systems, so if you want to bring people to do job skills training, what childcare services are available in your community so people can actually attend the training and get what they need to out of the training? Or are people appropriately matched with the training? So for right now, if you, you can go through tech programs, and you know we live in the DC metro area, we have a great tech corridor here, but when you look at people with criminal histories, they can't obtain security clearances or high level security clearances in many cases. So what does that really look like if they go through the program, they get the certificates, they have the trainings, but there's no real high growth job there for them. They'll probably can get a, a decent job in tech, but compared to their peers of what the what the limit or what the ceiling could look like for them is is a huge disparity.
2: Yeah, this reminds me of when we talked to Saquon and he talked about how, you know, some of the business incubator programs, or even uh, business support that was available. All of those programs were offered on a traditional nine to five model. But in his case, if A, you are working during your nine to five, and you're trying to run your business, or you're working a second job to be able to keep the business afloat, Those programs don't work. And so we have to be getting out of our traditional mindsets of like, this is when the program has to happen. This is what it'll cover to really thinking about where are the entrepreneurs or where are the folks we're trying to reach and what might their schedule be? Why would we have a business program during business hours? Um, And so I think a lot of that is all what questions are we asking and how do we rethink that model? For sure.
1: The other thing that I really like that we talked about that kind of goes into wealth building and me being an advocate of let's create our own wealth so we can fund our own programs within black and brown communities, looking at philanthropic giving. I looked at the National Philanthropic Trust and it says in 2018, Americans gave over $427 billion. The largest source of charitable giving was from individuals that was 68 percent 18% 18% came from foundations. 9% came from bequests. Is it bequests or bequeaths? I forgot again. Bequests?
2: I think the verb is bequest.
1: But it's, Like, it's, I bequest
2: but to you. But it's like,
1: whatever. I can't say bequest. Yes. B-E-Q-U-E-S-T-S. 9% of donations. <laughs> they made up 9% of donations. And then corporations <laughs> gave 5%. And... For more context in this, I encourage people to watch the Patriot Act on Netflix with Hassan Minaj. And he goes into philanthropic giving. But part of the issue is looking at donor advised funds. And we look at who really wins and who really benefits. When you have wealthy people and corporations that can give into a donor advised fund, they get their immediate tax break or their tax benefit. And that money isn't always released right away. That donor also, because it's donor advised, they get to advise where that money goes. And so we need to really rethink what philanthropy looks like in our communities, where the money is coming from, and then those organizations, again, going back to the data and where are we having metrics and measures of impact, what really are we asking of these grantees when they receive the funding?
2: But I think I would argue that
1: not even just
2: with philanthropic giving, but
1: following the money
2: is critical for any path. Like I'm thinking, you know, with opportunity zones, where's the money going? Who's putting up that money? We've got a lot of other campaigns happening right now in response to, you know, issues of racial ju- injustice, and you have companies pledging these big funds or big programs and initiatives like we should all be asking the questions of. Where's that money going? What has the impact been? Is this a one-time gift or is this something we're serious and serious about using to actually change structures and systems?
1: Yeah. And the, the ask here is for those funds and those foundations to really look at one, their timeframe. So you had mentioned in the episode two years, right? Like what can you really do in two years, but what are the real measures of impact? And I've been on the receiving end of grant funding where we had so much excess money left over and the funder was like, we don't want it back. You better spend it down. Like we don't, cause that's, you know, we just don't want to see that back. And they didn't even care what we spent it on. And those are the conversations that we need to change. Had I had somebody that was mandating a higher level of impact for that money, I would have totally done it instead of buying pens or armbands or whatever it might've been. And so we have to get out of this habit of doing good to feel good. Like if we do yep. good to make the impact, and I'm not discrediting, there are some great foundations out there doing really great work, but the culture of it has to shift.
2: There's a really good book, and it's more on the individual side of giving, but it's called Toxic Charity. And it's a lot around what you just said of giving in the way that makes us feel good, but not always giving in the way that's needed. Mm-hmm. So where do we go from
1: here? So it's wealth building. It's money because that is what clearly pays for everything. We are in a capitalistic society. I'm under no false illusion that we need the money. Donors can give it. The corporations have it. Cool. But we need to rethink how we allocate that money and what those real measures and what the data will tell us and how we can be impactful and actually move the needle.
2: So for me, I don't have a policy recommendation, but I have a quote from Bernadette. When we started the episode, I said, I love her because she challenges me to be unapologetically who I am. And there was a point in the episode where that came out in the fact that she is unapologetically who she is. And she said, you know, I own it. I am angry. I am the angry black woman. And you should be angry, too. In fact, you should be angrier. And so I guess my challenge to folks would be like, what is that thing that you are pissed off about? Katie was pissed off and wanted to start a podcast. And here we are today. Like, find that thing and really do some research, start having conversations and figure out what are the actions in the space. To really make a difference and
1: make a change. So get angry folks. I love it. I'm, I'm trying not to be angry. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be like happy raged, happy enraged.
2: Okay. Get angry and channel that
1: into positive <laughs> action. What is that movie? I, I, when they're... Rainbows and unicorns <laughs> Listen, I let my haters be my motivators. That's like the, let it be your motivation. All right. Thanks, Aaliyah. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on iTunes, on Spotify, as well as our website. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.